date was April 17, 1521. And in this tiny little farming village in rural Germany, everything was abuzz. The world was on fire. The world was on fire because Charles V was in town. Charles V was not only the king of Germany, but Charles V was the emperor of all of Europe. And he was in town in order to conduct a trial, not just a trial, but the trial of the millennium. Because Martin Luther was on his way to this tiny little village in rural Germany to stand trial. You see, two and a half years earlier, Martin Luther had nailed his famous 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And these 95 theses outlined all of his objections to the Catholic Church of his day. The Catholic Church of his day had become terribly corrupt. They had created all of these unbiblical requirements for entry into the kingdom of God. And that all of that put the church as the one who was in control of who was in the kingdom of God and who was not in the kingdom of God. And that gave him an enormous amount of power. Martin Luther was reading his Bible and seeing that this is unbiblical. He was seeing that God saves by faith alone. And so he nailed these 95 theses to the, to the door of the church. And all of Germany was rallying around them. They were resonating with the fact that God loves them and saves them by faith alone, not through all of these strange hoops that the Catholic Church wanted them to jump through and all this power that they had to secede to the church in their lives. And that was resonating with the people of Germany. And so Luther had become more popular in Germany than the Pope himself. Yet as you might imagine, this didn't sit too well with the church. And so they had called Martin Luther to this tiny little country village in order to stand trial for what he had taught and what he had written and what he had said. Now this little village was abuzz with energy. All kinds of people were here. Imagine if you would if say, President Obama was going to have a town hall meeting over in Ossipee Town Building. Imagine what this town would look like. People packed in here from everywhere. And that's exactly what was going on. The world seemed to be on fire. And this tiny little country village was the center of all of that. Charles V was, it was here at the bidding of the Pope. And he was to conduct this trial of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was on his way to stand trial voluntarily. Now as Luther was making his way to this tiny little village, you can be certain that one thing that was on his mind was what had happened to those before him. Because you see, Martin Luther was not the first one to read his Bible and realize that God teaches in His Word that people are saved by faith alone. About a century earlier, a Czechoslovakian priest by the name of John Huss had also came to the same conclusion from reading his Bible. And he began teaching the same things which the church objected to in the same way. And he had stood trial just as Luther was going to stand trial. And at the end of his trial, he had been condemned as a heretic and burned at the stake. And so without a doubt, that was weighing heavily on Luther's mind as he makes his way to this country village. But not just him, his friends as well, because everyone, everyone in Luther's life tried to convince him not to go. You will be declared a heretic, you'll be burned at the stake, don't go. Luther answered all of his friends with this now famous statement, Though there be as many devils there as tiles on the roof, I shall go. 
And no, he did. He stood trial. And in the trial, they set a table before him and they laid out 25 of his books and pamphlets that he had written. All of them in one way or another talking about salvation by faith alone. And they asked him if he would recant what he had taught and what he had written. And he gives this infamous reply. Though I be convinced by the word of God and sound reason, I cannot recant. And so on the word of God, I stand. God help me. Martin Luther did a very difficult thing. He was convinced of the will of God in his life. And he was convinced that the word of God taught him. And against the advice of everyone in his life, he went to do exactly what God compelled him to do. Some of you this morning are struggling with what the will of God is in your life. Some of you are wrestling with discerning what God would have you to do. Others aren't so much wrestling with what God's will is. You're wrestling with how to do it. With just getting it done. So we're going to look this morning to the story of Paul. Because Paul was cut from the same cloth as Martin Luther. Luther had a resolve. He had a determination. He had a clear understanding of the will of God for his life. And nothing was going to stop him. Paul, in the same way, had a clear understanding of God's will for him and nothing was going to stop him from accomplishing just that. We turn the page in the story of Acts this morning to chapter 21. So if you have a Bible near you, go ahead and grab it. Find Acts chapter 21. Paul has just finished this tearful farewell at Ephesus. Remember, he's on a mission. His mission is to get to Jerusalem. There is no doubt in his mind what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He doesn't know the details or exactly how it's going to work out, but there is no doubt that what is waiting for him in Jerusalem is not going to be pretty. The Spirit has told him this all the way back from Acts chapter 9. Has told him clearly what is awaiting him. And he's constrained by the Spirit to go here. And so he stops by this place in Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem because even though he has a destiny in Jerusalem, even though what awaits him there is not pleasant, not only is Paul going to Jerusalem, he's hurrying to get there. He's rushing to Jerusalem because he wants to get there for the festival of Pentecost. And so he stops by this place in Miletus. He wants to see the church in Ephesus one more time, but he can't go all the way to Ephesus. He can't spend that much time there. So he calls the elders to him in Miletus. And here in Miletus, he has this tearful farewell. Lots of tears, lots of crying, because they know that this is the last time that they'll see him. And they know that what awaits him in Jerusalem is not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be pretty. So there's this tearful farewell. And in the midst of all these, this crying and all this, this, uh, these tears that are being shed, Paul gives them this teaching in Acts chapter 20, and it revolves around this one statement in verse 28. Watch yourselves. Take care to watch yourselves. In other words... This is how you're going to guard your flock. You're going to guard your flock by diligently, relentlessly pursuing God yourself. By not accepting anything less than close fellowship with God at all times. Relentlessly pursue Him in your life. And that is how you can best guard your flock. And so they have this tearful farewell. We come now to chapter 21 and we even see how tearful it continues to be from verse 1. And when we had parted from them, we set sail. Now that word that Paul uses, or Luke uses there for parted, it speaks of, of emotional trauma. So we could, we could translate that when we had 
been torn, we tore ourselves away from them. We set sail and we came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And so he lands here in Tyre. Tyre was the the major capital, or I'm sorry, the major shipping port of the ancient world. There was no shipping port that came as, that came close to Tyre in size and importance. So they stop here in Tyre, and we see here in verse uh, verse four. We had sought out the disciples. We stayed there for seven days. So he stays in Tyre for seven days. Now we may ask, well, why was it that Paul stayed in Tyre for seven days when he didn't have time to go see the church in Ephesus? And that's, that much is made clear to us because Paul, or Luke tells us that Paul is a slave to the ship's schedule. Paul has bought passage on the ship and the ship is stopping in Tyre to unload its cargo, load up more cargo, and he doesn't have a choice. However long the ship is staying in Tyre is how long he's going to stay in Tyre. So he's here in Tyre for seven days, and what he does in the seven days doesn't surprise us at all because verse 4 tells us that, that they sought out the disciples. So he seeks out the disciples. We have no indication that Paul has ever been in Tyre before. So these disciples that he finds in Tyre would have probably been people that he met for the first time right now. And so he meets these disciples whom he's never interacted with before and they share an immediate bond. They resonate with one another immediately because they share the same spiritual DNA, don't they? Has that ever happened to you? You meet somebody, a brother or a sister, you've never met them before and immediately you know you are the same family, you have the same father, you share the same DNA. This is what happens with Paul. He meets these disciples. He spends seven days with them. But then take a look at what happens during the seven days that he's here. Again, from verse 4, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So, we have a problem that we must deal with in verse 4. And the problem is this. Luke seems to be telling us that the Spirit tells these believers in Tyre to tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now that's problematic for us for at least two reasons. First of all, that's problematic because if it is indeed God that is communicating to Paul through these believers that he should not go to Tyre, then Paul openly disobeys God because he goes on, or I'm sorry, he goes on to Jerusalem. And so Paul would openly be open in, be in open disobedience to the will of God. And that would be problematic for us it's not problematic because we think that Paul was, was not a sinner, that he was not capable of disobeying God. We know that's not the case. But instead, it'd be problematic for us because the whole entire narrative tells us that this was the will of God. Jerusalem was the will of God. Paul was not in disobedience when he goes to Jerusalem. So here, if Paul gets to Tyre and God is telling him something different in Tyre, then we've got a problem. It means that one of two things is happening. Either A, God changed his mind, or God's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Because just as recently as chapter 20, verse, verse 23, we're reminded that the Spirit is involved with Paul's mission to Jerusalem. Verse 23, Paul says, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Hard to be clearer than that, that Paul is constrained, literally bound by the Spirit. It's almost as though Paul didn't have a choice. 
I'm going to I'm going to Jerusalem and this is the spirit's work. And so if we get to chapter 21 and we find that the spirit here is trying to tell Paul something different, then we've got a problem that we've got to sort through. Now, keep all of that in mind. We're going to flesh that out just a little bit later. But keep in mind this difficulty that we have. What is exactly going on? What are these believers doing? And it seems as though Luke is saying that it is the Spirit that is saying this, that is putting this in their, in their mouth. So they're trying to convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So put yourself in Paul's place. Does Paul want to go to Jerusalem? In one sense, yes. Because he absolutely knows that is the will of God. But do you think Paul is excited about going to Jerusalem? Do you think that he's particularly happy about what awaits him there in Jerusalem? I would suggest to that Paul's, Paul's not any different than us. That he would be struggling with that internally. Yes, he's committed. He's going. Nothing's stopping him. But at the same time, there's this sort of inner war taking place between his flesh and his spirit, just like Jesus in the garden. There's this war taking place between the flesh and the spirit. And so when he encounters these believers in Tyre who try to convince him not to go, just think of what's going to take place in Paul's mind. Look at what they do. Verse 5. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. So, they're, con- they're trying to convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem. He's getting ready to leave. The ship's going to set sail. They come out, notice what Luke tells us, with wives and children. In other words, they brought the women and children to help. To help what? Convince Paul not to go, I bet. Crying women, little children, Paul. No, you can't, you can't go, you can't do this. Imagine what that's doing with Paul. Then notice that they pray. Luke doesn't tell us what they pray. But does anybody doubt that some of those prayers probably went something like this? God... Show Paul that he should not go to Jerusalem. God, will you just stop this Jerusalem trip? God, will you cause Paul to miss the boat? Will you cause the boat to leave without Paul? Will you do something to stop Paul's journey to Jerusalem? I would not be surprised if some of those prayers were unbiblical prayers in that sense. You ever had that happen to you? You ever had other believers pray? And as you're listening to them pray, you know that they're praying directly against the will of God. They're not praying as Jesus prayed in the garden. Remember how He prayed, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And so all of this pressure is coming upon Paul. He already is in conflict. Not externally. He's committed to going, but at the same time, this is not pleasant. And then here come all these believers in Tyre. Hey, the Spirit told us that you're not supposed to go to Jerusalem, Paul. And then the tears and all this and then the prayers. But take a look at verse 6. Paul doesn't succumb to that. Verse 6, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. So, uh, it, th- though this be difficult, Paul goes anyway. He doesn't listen to, uh, to bear advice. He gets on the ship and goes anyway. But then we come to verse 7 and notice that all this pressure has not let up. When we finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. We've heard of him before. Way back on the Gaza Strip. Remember, Philip was the one who went to Ethiopia. uh, 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 Not Ethiopia. Samaria. He went to Samaria 
And he was the one leading the revival in Samaria. And then the spirit takes him to the Gaza Strip and he meets the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the Isaiah scroll. Philip leads him to Christ, baptizes him. The spirit ushers him away. Remember that whole story. Now we meet him again. He's living in Caesarea. And Paul connects with him. Um, Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, the first seven deacons, and stayed with him. And then verse 9, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, I want to just pause right there and think about the role of women in the early church. Because this is a good example to show us the role of women in the early church. The early church consistently showed us an example of women who held important positions, leadership positions within the early church. If we were to go back into this time and we were to experience the culture of this day, we would see that was unheard of. For women to be given such positions as that in the church, that was unheard of. And yet Philip has four unmarried daughters. An unmarried daughter would have been an even lower standing than a married daughter. He has four unmarried daughters who are holding this office of prophetess. Now, we don't know exactly what that is. We don't have time to go into what that was or what that wasn't. But we do know this was an important position within the church. And four women are holding that position. We see the same sort of thing over in the story of Aquila and Priscilla. Priscilla is holding, obviously, a leadership position there. So the one thing I want us to see, we don't have time to really flesh this out, is this. The early church from day one affirmed women. Jesus, from day one, affirmed women. Jesus took women... He treated them in a way that elevated them in the culture beyond anything else of their day. We tend to focus, I think, within the church, especially in conservative circles, we tend to focus on that one role that Scripture says is not to be filled by women. We tend to focus there, ignoring the example of the early church, ignoring Jesus, who affirmed women in all kinds of roles, many of them leadership. We, have, we ignore the passages that affirm women in leadership in the church, all the time wanting to focus on that one role that Scripture says is not for a woman to feel. So just, just a tangent note there. We see once again the church affirming women in the church. And so we see these four daughters, unmarried daughters, who prophesied. Then verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So there, once again, is a face from the past. Agabus, we met him back in chapter 11. Remember, he was the prophet who prophesied about the famine that was coming to Jerusalem. So Agabus comes back into the scene, and look at what he does, verse 11. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus comes and he has this prophecy. The prophecy is, that when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he will be bound by the Gentiles. Nothing new there. Paul has known this for a long time now. So there's no new information other than maybe you know the binding of the hands and the feet. Maybe that's some new information. But there's really no new information there. But Agabus does this. Notice how dramatic he makes it. He takes Paul's belt, binds his own hands and his own feet, and says, in this same way, so will the owner of this belt be bound in Jerusalem by the Gentiles. So he does this big drama thing, this big acting out thing, which reminds us so well of the Old Testament prophets. Have you noticed how often the Old Testament prophets dramatized the message of God? God would give them a message and it would be a message of, of both words and drama, acting it out. Over and over we see this sort of thing. Uh, Jeremiah, for example, remember he, had, he buries the soiled linen cloth? Uh, or uh, remember he takes the flask 
And he breaks the flask and says, so just as I have broken this, so God will break you. Or he takes the yoke and he puts the yoke on his shoulders and says, just as I have put this yoke on, so also will you put this yoke on with Gentiles and all these sorts of things. Or Ezekiel, Ezekiel's great. Ezekiel, um, God has Ezekiel shave off all of his hair, separate his hair into two piles and, and says, just as I've separated my hair, so also will God divide the kingdom. Or the best one, I think, was when God had Ezekiel make signposts directing the Babylonians to Jerusalem. Ezekiel's God's telling his people, the Babylonians, I'm going to send the Babylonians with judgment. And then he tells Ezekiel, go outside of Jerusalem and put up signposts to say, hey, Babylonians, Jerusalem's that way. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what the people thought of him? But we see that same sort of thing so often in the Old Testament is God has a message for his people and his prophet acts it out. Same sort of thing with Agabus here. He sort of acts out what God is telling him is going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem. Now notice what Agabus doesn't do. He doesn't apply it to Paul's life. He tells Paul, this is the word of the Lord, but he doesn't say, therefore, Paul, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't say that, but everybody around him does. Look at verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Notice that very carefully. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. What does we mean to you? We means that whoever's writing this is including himself in that. Even Luke has joined in now to try to convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Luke is clearly painting a picture for us that Everybody there was singing from the same sheet of music. This was a unified message from everybody at Tyre and from everybody at Caesarea. Don't go to Jerusalem. It's even backed up by the prophet and supposedly backed up by the Spirit back in verse 4. Now, there's these four daughters that are prophesying. Luke doesn't tell us what they prophesied. Anybody want to make a bet that had something to do about Paul going to Jerusalem? Can you imagine what Paul's going through? Every single human in his life has now told him the same thing. Do not go to Jerusalem. Can you just imagine the spiritual pressure that Paul is under. I don't think Paul's particularly excited about physically what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. You ever had something hard to do for God? And secretly you look for a way out? And the first person that would give you half of an open door to get out of it, you took it? Well, maybe you shouldn't do that, brother. Well, sister, maybe God really doesn't want you to do that. Okay. You ever been there? I think we all have, haven't we? Every person in Paul's life right now is telling him the same thing. Do not go to Jerusalem. However, Paul will go anyway. Now let's pause right here. And let's try to understand what this means. Because we noted back in 
verse 4, that this is possibly problematic for us. Here's, I think, the only way to understand what Luke is telling us in this book. Luke is telling us this. The Spirit of God has properly told these disciples in Tyre and the disciples in Caesarea, Agabus, the Spirit has properly told all of them of what's going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem. What the Spirit has not told them is that therefore Paul shouldn't go. In other words, the Spirit has gotten good information from God. God has somehow communicated correctly to all of them. They've understood correctly, hey, what's, what's going to happen in Jerusalem is not going to be pretty. However, where they have taken that one step further is to say, well, therefore, obviously this means that you shouldn't go. That's where they made the mistake. And I think that Luke is going to show us this in the passage, that that is where they strayed from the, the will of God. So, having said that, we're going to come back to that in a moment. Let's just finish the passage. Verse 13. Paul is under enormous, enormous pressure right here. You know how strong peer pressure is? Anybody doubt that peer pressure is one of the, one of the most powerful forces in our life? Paul is under enormous peer pressure here. In verse 13, he finally breaks. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? What are you doing? I mean, come on. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Give it a rest, guys. Give it a rest, okay? Why are you making a difficult thing more difficult? What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Why are you giving me a hard time? I am ready to die for the Lord in Jerusalem. He's told me to go there. Why are you giving me a hard time? I'm ready to die for the Lord. The problem is, you're not ready to see me die. That's the problem. Paul is ready to die for the Lord. His friends aren't ready to see him die for the Lord. So, give it a rest, guys. Dry it up. I'm done, says Paul. What are you doing? Then verse 14, And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Now you know there's two ways that you can say, Let the will of the Lord be done. You can say that with trust and surrender and faith, and that honors God. Or you can say that with pessimism and anger and frustration, and that dishonors God. And I think that's exactly how they said it. All right. Nothing more we can do. You're in God's hands, Paul. Nothing more I can do. You're just if you're too if you're too dim to listen to all this wisdom, there's nothing more we can do. Let the will of the Lord be done. I think that's exactly how they said that. But notice Paul continues to be resolved. He reminds you of somebody right now? Jesus, maybe? Do you remember as Jesus was resolved to go to Jerusalem? Remember what happened along the way? Remember what Peter had to say? Hang on, Jesus. No. Change your plans, Jesus. We ain't going to Jerusalem. No, no, no. We are not going to Jerusalem. You are not going to be taken by the Gentiles. You're not going to be beaten. You're not going to be crucified. This is not going to happen, Jesus. Change your plans. Get behind me. Stay safe. 
Because Jesus was resolved to go. He would not be deterred from the will of God, no matter who told him otherwise in his life. We see remarkable similarities between Paul, between Jesus, between Martin Luther. Though there be as many devils there as tiles on the roof, I shall go there. And so, they finally stop. Let the will of the Lord be done. Then just to finish the passage, verse 15, after these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh, I think, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So there ends the third missionary journey of Paul. And this is the last missionary journey in the book of Acts. Some people speculate that there was a fourth missionary journey that is not uh, narrated in Acts. That's all speculation. As far as Acts is concerned, the missionary journeys are over. Everything from this point on is Paul in the custody of Gentiles and Jews and standing before Felix and Agrippa on trial in Rome and all that sort of thing. So Paul, in his resolve, goes regardless of the pressure exerted on him by everyone else in his life. So let's just flesh this out. Let's take a few minutes and just kind of flesh out what Luke is teaching us in this passage. And the first thing I want to ask us is why all the pressure? Why all the pressure from everybody in Paul's life? I want to begin sort of working through this by first of all affirming for all of us, affirming that Scripture teaches us undoubtedly that we are to seek and receive counsel from godly Christians. Scripture tells us this in abundant places. For example, from your sermon notes, from Proverbs 1, verse 5, let the wise hear and increase in learning and the one who understands obtain guidance or counsel. Or Proverbs eleven fourteen, when there is no guidance, a people falls, but in abundance of counselors, there is safety. We could point to about three or four other dozen places where Scriptures teach us the Christian is to seek out counsel in his life from godly Christians and he is to receive that counsel from others. So we affirm that. Luke is not teaching us in this passage that we shouldn't listen to what people say. Luke is not teaching us that we're sort of a lone ranger. What everybody else thinks is no concern of ours. We're just a plow head, full steam ahead. That's not what Luke is teaching us. Rather, What he's teaching us is how, many things. First of all, how it is that the counsel of others can become corrupt. And definitely, I think we see in this passage, corrupt counsel from others. First of all, we see that we see here the common inclination that people often have of attempting to know the will of God for others. Isn't that a common thing that we kind of see is that we we tend to know God's will for other people We tend to know what God's will is for you in your life. We should be very guarded against knowing the will of God for other people. First of all, do we ever know the will of God for somebody else? Yeah, we do. In those instances when Scripture is very clear to tell us the will of God for all people is to be sanctified. The will of God for all people is to flee sexual immorality. The will of God for all people is to be conformed to the image of Christ. On and on we could go. When Scripture speaks broadly of the will of God for all people, we can with great confidence say, listen, sister, the will of God in your life is for you to be made into the image of Christ. And we stand on firm footing when we say, when we say that. However, when we get into more specific areas, none of us knows the will of God for others. That doesn't mean we don't counsel others. 
But it means that our counsel is to say, this is what God teaches in His Word. This is what I see applies to your situation. This is how God has used similar things in my life. Now, you need to pray this through. That's the counsel, that's godly counsel from one believer to another. We should guard ourselves against knowing the will of God for others. Secondly, these well-meaning Christians try to force the will of God into their preconceived notions, kind of like forcing a square peg into a round hole. They have a preconceived notion about the will of God and what has been revealed to them by the Spirit. They try to force that into what their preconceived notion looks like. It goes like this. God's will is that I'm happy. And so therefore, if I'm not happy, that means I'm out of God's will. Therefore, Paul, this means for you that you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. See how that works? God's will is that my life be free from pain. I'm not free from pain. Therefore, I am out of the will of God. Therefore, whatever will remove pain from my life must be the will of God. See how that works? This is the preconceived notion that they're trying to force the will of God to fit into. And this is why, although they have correct information, they apply it incorrectly by making the will of God squeeze into their preconceived notions of what the life of every believer should look like. This should resonate with us in our culture very, very clearly. Because what's our culture all about? Our culture is all about me. It's all about what's, what's in this for me. It's all about the world revolves around me. And when we have that kind of a worldview, we will consistently force the will of God to fit where it doesn't fit and to work itself out in ways that it wasn't meant to work itself out. Because you know what? God is interested in your happiness. However, He's interested in your ultimate happiness. And oftentimes your ultimate happiness will travel through paths of unhappiness to get there. Your ultimate happiness is a pain-free existence. However, that will travel through places of pain in order to get there. And so we must be careful not to make the will of God fit into our preconceived notions. Thirdly, these friends demonstrate, I think very clearly, that their spiritual focus is more horizontal than it is vertical. Here's what I mean by this. Paul's friends here are very noble and they're very good and I don't question their motives. However, they are very short-sighted. What I mean by this is the thing that Paul's friends desire, Paul's safety, Paul's well-being, is that good or bad? Good, right? It's not a trick question. That's good. They love Paul, right? Is that good or bad? That's good. The problem is they desire good things too much. And they love Paul too much. Here's what I mean. They love Paul more than they love God. Paul is more important to them than the kingdom of God. They're more concerned about Paul than they are the kingdom of God. Again, is it wrong to love Paul? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to be concerned for his safety? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to be concerned about what will happen to this church planting movement once Paul is arrested? Hey, Paul is the church planter extraordinaire. 
He's planting churches everywhere he goes. He, and he needs to go to Africa. He needs to get into Asia. He needs to get to Europe. We can't have Paul arrested yet because we want the kingdom of God to expand. That is a good thing. The problem is they love that good thing and they want that good thing too much. Do you know, you know something? Do you realize that most of the sins in your life that you fall into are not because you secretly desire evil, heinous things? Most of the sin that you fall into is simply because you desire good, honorable things, but you desire them too much. And they become your God. They become your idol. I once knew a, a lady, not from this church, a lady who was a believer married to an unbelieving husband. And the conversion of her husband became her idol. She worshipped the conversion of her husband in such a way that it caused her to manipulate her husband. It caused her to do things and say things that were not godly because she wanted the conversion of her husband so deeply and so desperately that she was willing to do those things for it. Folks, that means that the conversion of her husband was an idol. And she wanted that more than she wanted God. I put in your sermon notes a quote here from Lou Priolo from a book that he wrote called Pleasing People. It goes like this. When you want something good, such as desiring your spouse to love you or your children to honor you or your boss to treat you with respect so much that you are willing to sin in order to fulfill your desire or to sin as a result of your desire not being fulfilled, your desire has become idolatrous. Such desires are sinful not because some new verse suddenly appeared in our Bible that says you shall not want your spouse to love you or you shall not desire your children to honor you or you shall not try to please your boss. In other words, they're wrong, not because of that, but because you have longed for them too intently. What may have begun as a legitimate God-given desire has now metastasized and mutated into an inordinate one. In other words, every, everything in your life can be good or evil depending on how much you love it. You can love good things so much to the point that they become sinful to you. And this is what I think happens in the life of Paul's friends. They love Paul. Led by the Spirit, they see that what's going to happen to Paul is not going to be pleasant. And they love Paul more than they love the will of God. Again, look to Jesus in the garden. Father, take this cup from me. Was it wrong for Jesus to want that cup taken away? No. But He immediately teaches us what He loves most. Not my will, but yours be done. Paul's friends stumble in this area. So, again, we see in this story, everybody in Paul's life, every person in his life, was singing the same tune. Do not go to Jerusalem. Yet, Paul goes. Let's just finish here by just asking ourselves the question, how was Paul so determined to do the will of God? How was Paul so resolute in doing the will of God when so many people in his life who loved him, who cared for him, who knew God, were telling him something different? First of all, Paul was resolute in his determination to do the will of God because he held firmly to the revealed will of God. God spoke to Paul. Paul. Paul heard it. Paul understood it. And nothing was going to change that. He held firmly to the revealed 
will of God. Just like Jesus. When Jesus set His face to Jerusalem, nothing was going to talk Him out of that. But secondly, and I think most importantly, is Paul held firmly to the, re- to the revealed will of God. Paul was not diverted in this mission because Paul was not a people pleaser. Paul will write to the Galatians later on in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul was not a people pleaser. Paul was a God pleaser. Let me be, let me be very clear. You in your life, you can please people or you can please God. You cannot do both. You can please people or you can please God. You cannot do both. And you need to decide which one you will please. Because in pleasing the one, you will displease the other. Paul determined a long time ago that he was not a people pleaser. He was a God pleaser. Paul ran the race of his life for an audience of one. Anybody know the name Eric Lydell? You may not know the name, but you know who he is. Eric Lydell was a world-class short-distance runner. He went on to be a missionary to China, but before he was a missionary to China, he was a world-class short-distance runner. He ran in the 1924 Olympics. And what makes Eric Lydell, I think, so special for us this morning was that, as I said, you do know him. Maybe not by name. They made a movie about him. The movie is called Cherry to Fire. And that movie is all about Lydell and his faith and issues that he, that he faced in his faith, faith. And the issue that he faced was this. He goes to the 1924 Olympics and his strongest event is the 400 meter. He gets there and he's told that the qualifying heat for the 400 meter will take place on Sunday. And he believes that it's wrong to run a race on Sunday. Now the point of the story is not whether it's wrong or right to run on Sunday. Paul is very clear on this in Romans 14. If it's wrong to you, then it's wrong. If it's not wrong to you, don't worry about it. To Eric Lydell, he was convinced in his heart that it was wrong to run a race on Sunday. Yet the qualifying heat for the 400 meter, which was his strongest event, was on Sunday. He faced a decision. And you know what? He had no problem making that decision at all. To him, it was a non-decision. He had a whole lot of people in his life that were telling him, God would want you to do this. God wouldn't want you to... God has given you this opportunity, Eric. He would not want you to throw this opportunity away. He had all kinds of people in his life telling him just that. And he had one God in his life saying to him, honor me and I'll honor you. And for him it was a no-brainer. Didn't run the 400 meter, didn't qualify, ran the 200 meter instead, set a world record. But the reason Eric Lydell never struggled with that was because Eric Lydell didn't run the race of his life for an audience of a whole bunch of people. He ran it for an audience of one. I'm convinced in my heart that the reason most of us struggle knowing the will of God and then doing the will of God is because we have too many people in our audience. Oh, God's in there. Along with a bunch of other people. And sometimes God and all those other people agree with each other and that's easy. Sometimes they don't. And that's when I have a problem. 
Because I'm running my race for God, but I'm also running it for my spouse, and I'm also running it for this guy over here, and I'm also running it for my kids, and I'm also running it for my boss. And when all these things conflict, I don't know what to do. Help me to understand the will of God. That's why you have a problem with understanding the will of God. Because you're not running your race for an audience of one. I am convinced that if you run the race of your life for an audience of one, all those problems will go away. And you will have no problem understanding what it is God desires from you. And furthermore, you'll have no problem doing it. Eric Liddell ran the race of his life for one. Martin Luther ran the race of his life for one. And so when his time came and everybody in his life was telling him one thing, he had no problem tuning all that out and saying, that's my audience. Paul ran the race of his life for one. Jesus ran the race of his life for one. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you that you care enough to be in our audience. Thank you that you want to see us run the race of our life. Thank you that you are interested in the outcome and thank you that you are invested in the outcome of our race. Help us to run it for you. Help us to seek the counsel of godly people in our life. Help us to receive that counsel while all the time understanding they are not our audience. You are. Take this word into our hearts in a way that I cannot, Father, implant it into our life this week. And I pray that this would be a week that is ran for one week.